Hey, man, it's me, Kevin Smith. Are you listening to the right podcast? Because you're supposed to be listening to Three Guys in a Flick. Are you listening to that right now? Then you're in the right place. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. The show is about to begin. Vern didn't just mean being off limits inside the junkyard or fudging on our folks or going on a hike up the railroad to Harlow. He meant those things, but it seems to me it was more in that we all knew it. Everything was there around us. We knew exactly who we were and exactly where we were going. It was grand. Welcome back. You are listening to Three Guys in a Flick. This is where we review the good, the bad, and the absurd. Tonight's episode. Stand by me. Beware spoilers. Coming to you from a small town in Castle Rock, Oregon, my name is Don. And to my right, we have our comic book guy, John. Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Whoever said you had a fat one, comic book guy? Fattest one in four counties. And to my left, we have the professor, Ken. You guys want to go see a dead body? Yeah, I like that idea. I'm in. <laughs> Tonight we are talking about Stand By Me. Stand By Me comes to us from the Bronco Helmet, and it was submitted by one of our listeners, Brandon. It was my turn to pick out of the Bronco Helmet. I picked Stand By Me. I remember seeing this in 1986 when I was, in fact, 12, the same age as these characters. And I remember the impact it had on me way back when. And I haven't seen it in a couple of years at least. So it was fun to go back and rewatch it. So, Brandon, thank you for putting it in the Bronco helmet, and we hope you enjoy the review. Comic book guy, you've seen Stand By Me, yes? Oh, yeah, I've seen it many times. I remember seeing it when I was 14, and I remember the first time I saw it, I connected with the movie because I had friends just like they're portrayed in this movie. Yeah, yeah. Professor? Yeah, I've seen it several times. You saw it in the theater, yes? Yeah. Released on August 22nd, 1986, Stand By Me was directed by Rob Reiner. Screenplay by Bruce A. Evans and Ronald Gideon. Based on the book, The Body, short story form. The 1982 collection, Different Seasons, by Stephen King. And it stars Will Wheaton, River Phoenix, Corey Feldman, Jerry O'Connell, Kiefer Sutherland, John Cusack, Casey Zemesco, Gary Riley, Richard Dreyfus, Popeye, and a bunch of other actors. How'd this movie do, Don? This movie was made for $8 million and brought in $52 million. I was actually surprised. I thought this movie was pretty popular at the time that it only brought in 52. Well, in 1986, spending $8 million and bringing in $52 million wasn't anything to shake your shit at. Mm-hmm. Well, it also came out in the middle of the summer. And this was this was an impressive summer when it came in. What year was it? 1986. Yes, and we've talked about how big 1986 has been. The number one grossing is Top Gun. Number two, you have Crocodile Dundee. Three is Karate Kid 2. Four is Back to School. Five is Aliens. Six is Star Trek 4. Seven is Color Purple. Eight is Ruthless People. Nine, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And then rounding out at 10, Down and Out in Beverly Hills. So when it comes out on its first week, four of those top 10 grossing movies are in the theater at the same time. 
And when it comes out in the theater, get this. It debuts at number 25 because it's only in 16 theaters. Right. 16. What the fuck is that? That's called a limited release. And, you know, just for comparison, the same... Uh, that same week, you have Transformers the movie. You remember that one, don't you? The animated one? Yeah. Fuck oh, yeah. yeah. I still have a little bit of heartbroken from that one. 990 screens. The other one that came out, One Crazy Summer, that was like 980 screens. So to come out on 16 screens, I think that they're maybe, they wanted to test the waters. The second week, it was also still at 16 screens. But in the third week, it jumped to 745 screens. And then from there, it jumped up to number two on the box office. And then in the fourth week, it hit number one. And it uh, it had 800 screens at that time. In week number seven, it got bumped down to number two by what? Uh, Top Gun. What the fuck? Top Gun. It had already been in the theaters for 19 weeks, and it went back up to number one again. In week number eight, Crocodile Dundee comes out, but it does beat Top Gun because Top Gun dropped to number three. So you have number one, Crocodile Dundee, two, uh, Stand By Me, and then three, you have Top Gun. And so in the end, it ends up staying in the top 10 for 17 weeks. So that's pretty damn good. I was so impressed uh, learning about that. So you had mentioned that this was a short story called The Body by Stephen King from a book called Different Seasons. Yes, I did mention that. Uh, What other big movie came out of that? Apt Pupil. And? (laughs) Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. Well, that's what it's called in the book. I know, and so does everybody else who listened to the fucking podcast. John asked what movie, not what... And I told him, Apt Pupil. Okay. But I said big movie. Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. Yeah. So that's impressive. A couple of short stories produced a couple of great movies. And uh, to this day, I believe Stephen King's favorite adaptations of his work are Stand By Me and The Shawshank. Mm-hmm. And well, he should feel good about that because I got to say, when I read, because I, I read different seasons back in 82 and this c- came out in 86, right? Mm-hmm. And I was... I was flabbergasted. I was floored. I have never seen such an accurate adaptation from book to screen. There, I counted like three subtle little things back in the day when I saw it. There were just little things that were different from the book. Right. And where I was going with that was if those are his favorite adaptations and what is the commonality? Probably that they closely resemble the book. No, the commonality is they're not horror movies. Yeah. And Stephen King's adaptations of his horror movies, they're hard to do. And look at, you know, any of them. The ones that stand out kind of take liberties and do things on their own to get away from the material, a la The Shining. I didn't read Shawshank or Stand By Me, and if Stephen King says that those are his favorite adaptations, who am I to argue? Because both of them are brilliant films. Mm -hmm. I guess my point in all of that is it's his dramatic takes that people love, and not so much the horror, because I don't think that Hollywood has quite figured out how to end a Stephen King movie. 
when Rob Reiner screened this movie for Stephen King, uh, at the end of the movie, he went in to check on him, and Stephen King was just sitting there silent. And he thought at first maybe he hated the movie. And that's when Stephen King told him this was basically my favorite adaptation ever of my movies. Rob Reiner takes the directing credit here. Did you guys know that he wasn't the first choice? I did not know that he was not the first choice. Uh, Adrian Lin, or Lin, or however you want to say his name, was the first choice. And you might recognize him from Flashdance, and he goes on to do... uh, and he goes on to do Fatal Attraction and Nine and a Half Weeks. And why did he get removed from this movie? He didn't. Rem- he didn't get removed. He didn't take the job because he wanted a break. I had actually read that he was uh, whatever movie he was working. On, I think Nine and a Half Weeks at the time mm-hmm. was going too long, and so they decided he just would not be available. Now, well, that very well may be true, but the documentary I watched oh. uh, said that he just wanted a break. Okay, so he, that's why he didn't do it. So they called Reiner. And Reiner had just done a sure thing with mm-hmm. one John Cusack. And before that, this is Spinal Tap. So really, this is Reiner's kind of jumping off point to yeah. becoming the director that we know him to be now. Because his next four movies hit the sweet spot. Did you know this movie was almost not made? Yeah. What I read was uh, Coca-Cola bought Embassy Pictures, uh, which was the original production company. And they announced that they basically weren't going to make the movie. They weren't going to fund the movie. But Norman Lear, who had worked with Rob Reiner on, on All in the Family, just had so much faith in Rob Reiner, he said he would fund the whole movie himself. Seeing as we have done a few movies of Rob Reiner, shot out of canon real quick, not your favorite, but one that just absolutely stands out, not named, Stand By Me or The Princess Bride. Well, that was the other one. Okay, well. My, my next one is Few Good Men. Solid fucking choice. This is Spinal Tap. Oh, I... Another solid fucking choice. I'm a huge fan of that movie. I totally thought you would have gone Harry Met Sally. That's where I'm going. I love When Harry Met Sally. It's such a good movie. Uh, Yeah, listeners, When Harry Met Sally and The Helmet. Or This is Spinal Tap. Or A Few Good Men. Thanks, guys. Uh, Let's talk about this cast a little bit. Will Wheaton. I love Will Wheaton. I just always have had a thing for him in that, you know, even when he was on Star Trek Next Gen... Uh, when he was in this movie, I just, I've always been a big fan of him. I'm a big fan of his podcasts, uh, you know, the stuff that he has on the internet. It's just, a, I think, an all-around good guy. I love him on The Big Bang Theory. Yes. Because he plays Will Wheaton. Oh, plays an yeah, evil yeah, Will yeah, Wheaton. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's so good. Uh, I thought he did a fantastic job. So he has a not dissimilar character that he plays on another TV show uh, in Leverage. And he plays this sinister bad guy that's not necessarily bad, bad guy. But he's he's fun in that being right. a bad guy as well. Right on, right on. The late great River Phoenix. I wish we could have gotten more from him. Yeah, well, so do I. Drugs a bitch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I think he steals the film. His character resembled a lot of guys that I knew, and he just did it with such heart. And actually, you can say that about all four of them. They put their hearts into these roles, and you can fucking tell. They were cast properly. Absolutely. You go back and Will Wheaton talks about the abuse that his parents were giving him and he kind of, he was that shy kid and, and watching it again last night, he tells such a story in his eyes with just his eyes and you buy it and you believe it. Same with River Phoenix. I thought it was interesting that River Phoenix, when he originally auditioned, he auditioned for Gordy. Right. And Rob Reiner took one look at him and said, no, 
you're yeah. Chris. Well, in the book, Chris is the main character. That's mm-hmm. what we focus on. It was Rob Reiner who said, no, nope, we're going to focus on Gordy's character. Jerry O'Connell, what would you guys think of him? You know, it took me forever to realize that that was Jerry O'Connell in that movie. I don't think it was until about 10 years ago that I realized that was the same Jerry O'Connell from the show Sliders that I used to love. Huh, interesting. Yeah, I had no idea as well because they look so different. You, you, you don't see it unless you look for the face in him. I think it's funny. He's, I think, married now to Rebecca Romain. I think so. I think they're still married. And yeah, there's a are. story out there that when they met, she never mentioned anything about, you know, Stand By Me or any of the movies or anything that he had been in, the TV shows. They just, you know, hit it off and uh, eventually got married. Well, eventually Jerry O'Connell was talking to one of Rebecca Romain's old roommates, I think in college, and she revealed that she had a huge thing for Stand By Me. In fact, she had posters all over her college dorm room of Stand By Me. So now he felt a little bit stocked, but he said, I don't care. It's Rebecca Romain. Oh, yeah. I mean, come on. Kiefer Sutherland as Ace, our bad guy. God, he looks so young in this movie. I know, I know. Well, because he was young. Yeah. He was good. I thought he did a good job. Yeah, yeah, sinister. Mm-hmm. Very, very sinister with yeah. that kind of that that blonde hair almost gave me the uh, Lost Boys feel. Oh, it should have. I mean, because it was that. Yeah. Um, two years later, three years later. Yeah. Um, John Cusack. He was actually doing a favor to Rob Reiner because he was in a Sure Thing, mm-hmm. and Rob Reiner needed to cast someone as Denny, and Cusack said, "Fuck, I'll do it." What do you think of Richard Dreyfus as our narrator? Richard Dreyfus will always be Hooper to me. And I love him in almost anything he does. His voice is so narrate-y, narrator-y. Yeah. Did you know that Michael McKeon was originally one of the first choices to be the narrator before they picked Richard Dreyfus? Yeah, he was the second one. Because uh, the first one, Rob Reiner, he didn't like his voiceovers. And mm-hmm. then because of this final tap, he had Michael come in and read. And that just didn't work out either. So. And then we have Popeye, a.k.a. Chopper. Do you know where else we know him from? No idea. Having a clue. He was also in War of the Roses and Out of Bounds. Of course he was. Do you know that he actually scarred one of the actors? I wouldn't doubt it. Uh, I don't know exactly which scene it was. I'm guessing it must have been the junkyard scene. Uh, Jerry O'Connell was teasing the dog, and the dog jumped up and bit him on a lip and I, I looked for it. I didn't see it. But they say if you look closely throughout the movie, you can actually see stitches on Jerry O'Connell's lips. One other thing I read that I thought was uh, kind of interesting was Sean Astin tried out for the role of Chris. And he went in right after, uh, right after River Phoenix and knew instantly he was not going to get the job. Do you know how he knew he wasn't going to get the job? Because he got a phone call for the Goonies? No, because when he walked in, he said the filmmakers were all crying oh. after River Phoenix's <laughs> audition. He's like, nope, I am not getting it. And then later on, when he saw the movie, he said they picked right. Oh, yeah. In this movie, we get a lot of era, you know, area period style music. What would you guys think of their choice of music? I thought their needle drops were great. In fact, in 1985, when the soundtrack came on, it was in heavy rotation in my house, listening to all of those old songs, Lollipop, Yakety Yak. All of it. Uh, I, I loved it. It really brought back Benny King's Stand By Me. I remember that that became pretty popular back in the 80s because of that. Do you know how many girls I danced with to Stand By Me? How many? It Two? Was a, it was Three? a lot. Four? Professor's on to something. 
So, yeah, 85, man, bringing back a, a oldie but a goodie. They originally wanted to have another pop star. Michael Jackson. I know. Can you believe that? Can you imagine a Michael Jackson version of that song? Well, first of all, yes. However, uh, them sticking with the original, completely, completely the right call. Yeah. Because it, it just fits. Uh, Benny King's voice, the tempo, just everything. That's apparently what, how Rob Reiner felt when he heard the Michael Jackson version, is that we need to go old school. Yeah. And, you know... Ultimately, they changed the name of the film because mm-hmm. they didn't want to call it The Body because it was written by Stephen King and people would naturally assume it was horror. Or it maybe it could sound a little porny. Well, yeah, there you go. And so they change it to Stand By Me. They get the song. And it's it's just like a perfect storm. It's one, and, of, it's one of the only songs in Billboard's history that hit the top 10 charts two separate times. In two you know, separate decades? Yeah. 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 That's impressive. Now, speaking of music, there was a lawsuit uh, over one of the songs used in this movie because they did not get the rights to it. Did you read which song it was? No. It was Have Gun Will Travel, the Paladin song. Apparently, they forgot to get the rights to that or didn't think they'd need the rights. Uh, they got sued and they lost the lawsuit. How much did they lose? I didn't read the number. Why not? You read all of that information, but you didn't read the ending? It was undisclosed. Oh, okay. Well, which is not unusual necessarily. Well, I know, but uh, interesting because it was a TV fucking show, wasn't it? Yep. In 1950-something, I'm guessing. Yeah, you think it was old enough that it was... The clear rights? I don't know. I don't know how it worked back then. Or somebody to be nitpicky like that still? Somebody just wanted some money. Well, wouldn't you? If you were on the have gun side, I mean, you're going to get paid. Well, I feel like if, if it's just a bunch of kids singing it, they're not even singing all of the song, but just singing a clip of the song. Doesn't that's matter. a little petty. Doesn't matter. No, it's not. That's the fucking rule. Mm-hmm. The rule exists today. Yeah, you can't use that shit unless you have permission. Uh, guess what time it is, boys? Uh, it's lunchtime. Welcome to another edition of Master Movie Trivia. I am your reigning champ. You may call me the champ. I have compiled five questions and five questions only to test your knowledge of the movie we are reviewing. Each question could be worth multiple points, so if you know the answer, say it. And please wait until I have finished each question. Let us begin. Question number one. According to Vern, what is the one food he would eat if he could only eat one food? Cherry spe- a Pez. Yeah, Pez. Correctamundo, Professor Cherry Flavored Pez. Question number two. When did Ben E. King release Stand By Me? 1968. Uh, I thought it was in the 1950s. Nope. 1961. 1961. Gary Riley who was Charlie Hogan, who was the blonde kid who discovers the body for the very first time, was also in a movie directed by Rob Reiner's father, Carl Reiner, which we have reviewed on Three Guys in a Flick. Name that movie. Summer School. Correctamundo. Question number four. What does Gordy call Ace when he is pointing the gun at him toward the end of the film? Dime Store Hooligan? Close. Judges? Yeah, nope, not specific enough, guy. I'm trying not to look at my notes. I don't have anything. Nothing? 
Dime store hood. The cheap dime store hood. And question number five. How much do the boys pony up for the groceries? $2.37. There it is. $2.37. Which is a connection to a lot of other Stephen King books. I guess that comes up in The Shining and comes up in uh, Pennywise, all in it. and It's a magic number for him. According to my calculations, comic book guy, you have won this round. Uh, you are one step closer to movie immortality. In 1985, writer Gordon Gordy Lachance reads a newspaper article about a fatal stabbing. He recalls an incident from when he was 12 years old when he, his best friend Chris, and two other friends, Teddy and Vern, went searching for the body of a missing boy named Ray Brower near the town of Castle Rock, Oregon during Labor Day weekend in 1959. As a child, Gordy's parents largely ignored him as they grieved the death of their elder son, Denny. Unlike their parents, Danny paid more attention to Gordy. Vern overhears his big brother Billy talking with his friend Charlie about finding the body. Billy does not want to inform the police because it could draw attention to the car theft he and Charlie committed. When Vern tells his friends about the body, the four boys, hoping to become local heroes, decide to look for it. After Chris steals his father's pistol, he and Gordy run into local hoodlums Ace Morrell and Chris's older brother Eyeball. Ace threatens Chris with a lit cigarette and steals Gordy's Yankees cap, which was a gift from Denny. So we start this movie out with some narration. Is that correct? Yep. Well, it's a quiet open, right? Yeah. We have the title card, and then uh, and then we're on a country road. What do you think of this style of opening? It was a good opening. It just kind of laid the groundwork real quick. Uh, we're automatically told about the stabbing through the newspaper, and then uh, the narration kicks in, and we see, or we see Richard Dreyfus sitting there, and then his narration take, and then his narration kicks in, and we know that he's going to be telling us the story throughout the right because we're pulled back into the memory. Right. So we're pulled back to 1959. You know, like within minutes. And we are immediately immersed into the story, which I thought was very uh, effective. And then we are introduced to our characters. Chris, Teddy, Gordy, and Vern. Yeah. What did you guys think of the interaction up in the treehouse? Classic. I feel like, as I mentioned earlier, I feel like we all have had friends very similar to it. So you can really connect to this movie in that either you see yourself in one of the characters or you can see your friends as the different characters. Oh, yeah. And being 12 when this came out, that was me and my friends. Talking talk smack like that all, the, all day long. Oh, yeah. Which character would you have identified as at 12 years old? Which one do you think I would have identified as at 12 years old? <laughs> I would say, for you, I'd say Chris. Mm -hmm. How about you, Professor? Gordy all the way. Same with me, Gordy. I thought you were more Vern. But, I, I think okay. I was more of the sensitive, artistic type. I did have a bit of Vern in me, so I'll, I'll say that. Oh, I bet you did, buddy. I bet you did. And so Vern is all spun up, and uh, he was under the porch looking for pennies, and they give us a nice little backstory I love that. that penny story that he buried it, but his mom threw out the map. Yeah, now he can't find it, and you have all those holes, which I thought is a nice touch. And this is where we find out that there was a dead body, 
uh, little Ray Brower got hit by the train and Charlie Hogan and Billy Vern's brother, they find it, but they don't want to do anything about it. And Vern overhears. And so he tells the boys. And so now. Yeah. Cause the other two had boosted a car. And so they didn't want anybody to ask why they were out there. They couldn't think up a good story. Right. Uh, but I had a question. I was wondering if your friends had come to you and said, I, or if one of your friends said, I found a dead body, want to go see it, would you have gone and seen it? Of course. How about you, Professor? In a heartbeat. I don't know if I'd want to go see a dead body. You're 12 years old, and you and your buddies are hanging out, and somebody says you want to go see a dead body? What do they keep calling each other? Pussy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I'm all over it. I would totally right. go. You'd go on that adventure. I, yeah. I would definitely go on the camping trip and the adventure, because you know, it's another thing to think about is how this movie relates to like today's generation who doesn't understand being outside, like being free, free range children that we were just outside all the time and that we could just go on adventures like that. Yeah. Well, it was a different fucking time. You can't let your kids go out and be free adventure these days. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So different era. Yeah. And especially in 1959 as well. Mm-hmm. Right. And how quickly they hatch a plan. <laughs> I love how uh, Vern is like, you could totally say that you're sleeping out at my house, blah, 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 blah. And then uh, they start to get into it and Vern's like, well, and then Gordy comes up with the master plan and it fucking works. Mm -hmm. I also like how I think it was Chris that said that he could be gone for a day at max, but he'd get in trouble if he's gone any longer, but it's worth the trouble. He'll take the trouble later. Yeah. He says, I'm going to get hide it anyway so yeah. it might as well be worth it and we're immediately kind of given uh not so much their backstories but we kind of understand what kind of kids we're dealing with mm-hmm. where the yeah their status in life yeah they're foul-mouthed little punks who are just growing up and they all have their you know obvious issues including um teddy with his burnt ear and we learned, it's, it's, I guess it's not until really late. We know that Denny has died, but we didn't know that Denny died four months ago, or did we find that out this early? It's Yeah, it's during this time that we find out that Gordy is the invisible boy. Yeah. And we get a, a short little backstory about what happened four months ago. The Jeep accident. Yeah. And then they're all excited because they think they can be local heroes, and they're getting all pumped up about it. And so now they're off. And while at home, Gordy's looking for his canteen, and we find out that mom and dad are completely awash in grief. And he goes into Denny's room and finds his canteen, and we have the first of the two flashbacks from John Cusack. Mm-hmm. And we also find out the importance of the hat that Gordy is wearing. And then we cut to Gordy walking down the street. and Meets up with Chris. And we find out that Chris hawked his old man's forty-five and some shells. What did you guys think of this bit? I did think it's funny when he uh, uh, thought the gun wasn't loaded and shot it, and then they had to run. <laughs> that was brilliant. And I, I, I could totally see you being Chris in this scene of, uh, you know, his name is Gordy and he lives at... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's totally me. That's totally something I would do. So they run away from the gun, and uh, Ace and Eyeball come out of the shop, and we kind of get this interaction. Before we hit that... I want to touch on something that happens that is uh, touched on many times in the movie to emphasize the significant relationship that Chris and Gordy have with each other. And so Gordy, he's pissed off about the gun going off and he's really worried that they're going to get in trouble or something like that. But the sincerity and 
which Chris apologizes to Gordy. He, he was very uh, forthright and sincere about it. And I, I thought that um, it was mature of Chris to do that for Gordy. And we get to see it several times touched in different ways throughout the movie. I think this is a great example of how boys at the time were in touch with their feelings. And especially in 1959 and the way Chris is, he will talk to you. He doesn't have to be that macho, masculine asshole, the alpha male, even though he looks it and he's the leader of the gang, but he's still human. And in 1986, I think it was very rare that we saw this, especially in a 12-year-old boy. Vulnerability like that. Yes, well said. And I think that River Phoenix and all the boys really do such a good job of saying that, you know what, it's okay to be me. My friends in this instance will love me for who I am. And it does come up throughout the movie when uh, Gordy's getting down on himself or Chris is getting down on himself or when Mm -hmm. Teddy freaks out, they all come together for each other Mm -hmm. in that moment. And this scene when they're doing that is the first time I ever learned a pinky swear. You know, it's interesting you bring up, uh, you know, Chris and kind of who he is and who he represents. You know, watching this movie this time, I was trying to be, you know, a little more critical, a little more analyzing of the different characters. And I thought it was interesting. I felt almost, if you really look at this movie, each character represented like a different aspect. I felt like Gordy was the one, you know, like, like a childhood, you know, person who just wanted to be loved and kind of represented innocence. You know, or maybe innocence lost to, uh, you know, sadness, things like that. Teddy kind of represented that anger and that rage. And I don't know if you remember, you know, as a child playing the war games where we used to run around the streets shooting each other and doing things like that. And, you know, I thought that was kind of Teddy's role in this movie. Vern, he was just the childhood or the childlike innocence in that we always knew that that one person who just didn't seem to get it but was very just pure. And, and Vern was a very pure character. When it came to Chris, I at first kind of thought he was supposed to be the rebellious, misunderstood kid. But then I started to think a little bit deeper. And you can tell me if you guys see this at all, but did he have kind of a Christ-like uh, analogy to him? And I'll give you some examples if you kind of don't see where I'm going with this. Not yet. Well, let me put you this way. If you look at Chris... He was always pushing the other characters to turn the other cheek. You know, get over it. Give me some skin. He kept saying, give me some skin. You know, it's okay. Let it go. You know, especially with Gordy, always telling Gordy, you're better than what everybody thinks. You need to kind of let go what your dad says or anybody else says. He seeks redemption and he and he provides almost salvation for the characters. He's misunderstood. He was betrayed by someone he trusted. And another thing that... In the end of the movie, it, you know, in the beginning of the movie and the end of the movie, we learn that he died for other people's sins. He died to break up a fight. That's not necessarily a sin. Well, the two people were sinning in a fight, and he was trying to stop them and, and basically bring peace to the two people and died. So I almost felt like they were kind of making him kind of the peacemaker, kind of the Jesus-type character in this group. Interesting. I hadn't yeah. thought about it like that before. Mm-mm. While watching it, I never thought about that. Uh, but now that you say that, I mean, you could. So we meet Ace and Eyeball, is it? Yes, Eyeball. And they are instantly summed up by their attitude and by their actions that they are going to be the antagonists of the movie. 
And they kind of have like a, a one-two ranking system, right? Ace is clearly the alpha leader, but Eyeball's like second in command of their gang, the Cobras. But my question was, and even back in 1986, uh, when Ace grabs Chris and throws him down on the ground and was going to burn him with a oh, yeah, cigarette, yeah. Eyeball's just kind of laughing. That's his big brother, man. That's his little brother. Yeah. Right. Exactly. What the fuck is that about? That's messed up. Suppo- kind of. Supposedly in the book, he's even more like worse to his younger brother. And and I buy that because Stephen King novels, it, it kind of goes that way with family. Yeah. But I remember growing up watching it going, wow, what a fucking dick. I'm so glad my brothers don't act like that. <laughs> I thought it was interesting that, you know, we had just seen earlier a scene that built up the idea of this hat, this New York Yankees hat came directly from Denny. So it was very important to Gordy. And now we have Ace kind of building up his evilness, his his badness, and that he takes the hat away from him. Yeah. And according to uh, what you know, Rob Reiner says, you know, Gordy never got that hat back. In fact, Ace just threw the hat away, never even used it. Well, actually, he gives it to Eyeball, and Eyeball is the one that ultimately probably throws it away. Yeah. Well, but when asked in an interview, Rob Reiner said either way, the hat got thrown away. That Ace did not keep the hat. Yeah, I didn't like him the moment I saw him. So they did a good job. But you just don't like blonde guys. Uh, not assholes. He just looks like an asshole. Look at him. Anyone with a haircut like that, you know he's an asshole. What movie? I don't know. Yeah, you fucking wouldn't. I wouldn't even bother. Weird science. The boys begin their trip after stomping at a junkyard for water. They are caught trespassing by owner Milo Pressman and his dog, Chopper. Once they escape over the fence, Milo calls Teddy's mentally ill veteran father a loony and refers how he almost burnt Teddy's ear off. An enraged Teddy tries to attack Milo, but the other boys restrain him. The four continue their hike, and Chris encourages Gordy to fulfill his potential as a writer despite his father's disapproval. While crossing a railroad bridge, Gordy and Vern narrowly avoid being killed by an approaching train by jumping off the tracks. In the evening, as the boys camp, Gordy tells a fictional story he created about David Lardass Hogan, an obese boy who is constantly bullied. Seeking payback, he downs a bottle of castor oil before entering a pie-eating contest and throws up deliberately, inducing mass vomiting among everyone there. That night, Chris complains to Gordy that he hates being associated with his family's reputation. He admits to stealing school milk money and says he confessed to a teacher, yet was still suspended as the teacher kept quiet and pocketed the money. Devastated by the teacher's betrayal, Chris breaks down and cries. So the story now has us at the railroad tracks, and this is going to take up probably the whole second act pretty much. Oh, yeah. I like how they're standing there and they're kind of calculating it, going, how far do you think it is to old Harlow Road? Yeah. And someone's like, 20 miles. Gordy? Gordy's like, 30 miles? At that point, I'm like, fuck that. Mm -hmm. I ain't walking 30 miles. But maybe at 12 years old, I would have. The payoff apparently was enticing enough that they were willing to endure that. Yeah, they did. And then so they start their journey. And they realize that they don't have any food. Nobody brought any food. I love that argument. I love the two arguments I love is one, 
that they didn't think of any food. They were arguing who was responsible for the food and the fact that Vern brought the comb. I love the fact that Vern brought the comb. He keeps bringing that up. I got the comb. Which kind of reminded me of you. It's something that you would do, comic book guy. We're at Comic-Con. I brought the water, right? I mean, always thinking ahead. And what made it even more solid for me, thinking of you, is when Teddy and Vern are yelling at each other about the comb. What does Vern say? Well, Teddy says, you don't have any hair. Why did you bring it? What does Vern say? He says, I brought it for you guys. And he was being selfless. And that's and that's my man, the comic book guy. So I was paying you a compliment. I will take it. Now we are at a junkyard. And it's these little dialogue pieces that I really enjoyed. And I really felt that really drew you into these characters. Because they were just talking about normal 12-year-old boy stuff. When I was 12, I wasn't talking about Annette Futicello. But I was talking about other girls. So they kind of nailed it in how they wrote it. I had actually had the goofy conversation with my friends. I want to talk a little bit about the train dodge that Teddy wants to do. Mm. It happens right before this. Well, we can't tell if he's suicidal or not. Yeah, he's because he's a little unhinged. But, you know, eventually Chris, you know, pulls him off the tracks and then Teddy kind of loses it to Chris. And then what we get is another example of Chris, you know, playing the peacemaker and he's insisting, you know, skin it. And then after, after that finally happens that, that, okay, now everything's cool with each other because now it's settled and it's passed and it's behind us. And there's no reason to be angry about this incident anymore. Agreed. And I like what Chris says, Teddy's all pissed off and he says, I don't need a fucking babysitter. And Chris is like, yeah, you do. He took that role because he cares about his friends. And it really shows us the trauma inside of Teddy as well. Certainly. Yeah. From what his father has kind of turned him into. Because even after all of the abuse, even after his father's been taken away, he still supports his father and his, his father, you know, sees his father as a hero. Sure. Did you two ever do mailbox baseball? I can neither confirm nor deny I have taken a metal bat to a, uh, a mailbox. I have not. Well, that's a shocker. But I have seen uh, other people. I've seen other people do it. <laughs> you beat me by one second, fucker. I've seen people doing that on videos and then hitting one of those metal ones that don't move, don't break. Oh, that's just harsh. Yeah. Well, I was waiting for one of those. What about you there, guy? Have no. you ever done it? No, no. I, I was never that ballsy. Oh. Maybe yeah. you're ace. Uh, that, I don't know how to take that. What color was your hair back then? It's still black. I just had more of it. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Thanks for bringing that up, dick. So, back to the junkyard. We're at the junkyard, and, oh, okay, they're going to get some water. Okay, I get that. Because I'm, I'm thinking, why the hell do you guys got to go in there so bad? You know, especially if chopper sick balls, right? Right. I thought it was interesting, because they, they had just talked up to have a chopper idea of sick balls and all that. And I thought, now they're going into that junkyard, no problem. But then they reveal later the junkyard doesn't open till three. Till three. Yeah. And then they decide someone's got to go get the fucking food. And Teddy's like, I'm not going. Gordy's like, I'm not going. So they all got to flip for it. Four tails. This is a goocher. Which is a goocher, which I thought, you know, I, I tend to look at some of these movies trying to looking for, you know, maybe foreshadowing. You know, I don't know if you guys have ever noticed that. Uh, and something that Vern says after they get the goocher is that means something bad's about to happen. Something, something's going to happen. 
And I wonder if that was foreshadowing for some bad incident that, you know, whether or not it's them getting chased off by Chopper or what happens in the end. I kind of saw that as maybe a foreshadowing by Vern. Um, you could. I think that the boys play it off and they're like, oh, it's just superstition. And if you're superstitious, then yes, Chopper chasing them could be bad. Uh, Ace and them showing up to the body could be bad. The noises they hear in the woods could be bad. So I mean, it's it's really up to the yeah. It's really up to the person. He gets to the store and he's getting their provisions, and the guy behind the counter recognizes him, and he starts going on about Denny, which takes us to the second flashback. Right, and this is where we find out kind of how home life is at the Lachance household. Dad's all about football. The mom's all about the girlfriend. And nobody gives a shit about Gordy. Except for Danny. It's there to remind us and tell us how close they were as brothers mm-hmm. and how much it's just absolutely devastating, Gordy, that he's not there anymore. Well, the interesting I thought with this scene too, in this flashback, is Gordy mentions earlier that or you know, that ever since his brother died, his parents pretty much ignore him. But we see at this scene, they ignored him before the brother died. Yeah. Yeah. So this is not anything new. It's just the fact now he doesn't have anybody in the house that shows him any love. So after that, he gets, what do you get? A half a pound of hamburger, hamburger buns and four Cokes? Something like that. I love that. Uh, for some reason, that's always stood out to me about this movie is what he buys at the store, and it's a buck fifty, mm-hmm. Right. And that would have been the perfect meal for four boys. So he gets back to the junkyard. Where is everybody? Oh, there they are hopping the fence. I love seeing that. Their panic is they're going over the fence. And right there it tells you, oh, shit, it's about to get real. Yeah. And guess who's there? Chopper. Yeah, we get to see kind of Milo in the background. I think he was doing something with a truck or whatever. So you, I love it. You kind of could see something happening. I love how the narration's going on at the same time. And even though you hear Milo going, sick him, boy, sick him. That's not what Gordy hears. And he hears Chopper, sick balls. And then that scream he yells at, and then he takes off down the fucking fence. I would have hopped that fence in a hot minute. He makes it over to the fence, and then the little fucking shit start teasing the dog. All right? That's kind of a dick move, right? Mm -hmm. Totally. It was actually a cute little dog. Well, whatever. I mean, you're still teasing it. Yeah, they didn't have to be assholes about it. But again, 12-year-old boys. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Milo gets all pissed off, and this is where he says, you're the Teddy Looney kid. And he starts teasing his dad, and Teddy just loses his fucking shit. I'll kill you. I'll kill you. And even the narrator says uh, he was surprised how much Teddy got upset by that and how much he loves his old man, even though he damn near killed him. Mm -hmm. So We have a poignant line right after that where uh, they're walking along, and Teddy says, sorry, I'm spoiling a good time. And then we have uh, Gordy come back and say, I'm not sure we should be having a good time. Very, very somber, very poignant. Yeah, it really was. And he has a very valid point. But it's picked right back up. So it's somber for a moment, for just a moment, because then what happens? Lollipop, lollipop, oh, lolly, lolly. The music starts. And then the, the 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 afternoon is carried along with all these great little tunes. To, yeah. To you know, just it just instantly brightens the movie. I it's I always when I think of Stand by Me, I think of Lollipop and the soundtrack. Yes. The needle Absolutely. drops. Yeah. The needle drops fit the movie perfectly. 
and the guys, they start talking a little bit about what's their future going to be like when they go to school because things are going to be different now. Gordy is clearly smarter and is going to be a writer and is going to go to the advanced college classes. He doesn't classes. want to. No, he doesn't. It's Chris that tells him that that's what you need to do. Right. I just like that all the while Chris is trying to talk Gordy up into, you need to do this, you need to become a writer. Gordy never talks down to Chris and always says, you can come along too. You can do all those things too. So they're both kind of talking each other up. And we come to the trestle. I love this scene. Would how, you, would you cross you it? Would you cross that tra- training trestle? Yes, but, yes. I would, but I wouldn't have crossed it as slow as they do. I would have fucking ran. Just, just to be sure. I don't. Okay, like- maybe not run, but I would have walked a lot faster than them. And fuck Vern for crawling on all fours. Well, that was, that was the problem, was Vern. Well, see, that- well, it was the problem for Gordy. Uh, Teddy and Chris are way, way of, uh, ahead of them. But Gordy being Gordy stays behind Vern because no yep. man left behind. This yep. is where I probably associate a little bit more with Vern because I really don't like heights. And so I would have had a problem crossing it just because of the heights. But while watching this movie, my dad was watching it with me. And uh, he, he crossed the train trestle just like that. On all fours? Not on all fours. <laughs> okay. But he had gone across one that used to be in Bellevue. That's awesome. And I like how Gordy always kind of has a sixth sense, right? So he, first he kneels down and feels the track, see if he can feel the vibration. And then they start moving along a little bit. And then he has like a spider sense and he feels it again. And you turn around and then you see the smoke coming up from the tree. Yep. And then you're like, oh, fuck. This was, I think, only one of the few scenes that bothered me a little bit. When, and I have to kind of blame it on the time and the technology and what they had to use the film with, but it looked really fake to me with the train behind them. First of all, they used a filter to make it look like the train. When you, when you were looking at the kids and had the train behind them, they used a filter to make it, the train look a lot bigger and a lot closer. They, they used a long lens. Yeah. And then when they're running and it looks like they're almost about halfway across the trestle, that train is probably going about 60 miles an hour or faster. And it they're literally only... 50 feet ahead of it, there was no way they would have made it across. When you watched it, was it tense? Probably the first time I watched it, yeah. Oh, it was still tense for me, even last night when watching it again. I thought they did a great. And for the time, I didn't care. I It looked like a, it looked like a projection mm-hmm. and whatever, but I'm so engrossed in the story, it didn't bother me at I all. just kept thinking that there's no way the distance between them and that train that they would have gotten across in time. Well, then they would be dead and the movie would be over. Mm-hmm. And so then be, they would be looking at three dead bodies. Yeah, there'd be even more bodies. Well, yeah. You know, you're out in the middle of nowhere, and you're going across a trestle, and why is the train horn blowing? Because the engineers are blowing, which means they got to see the kids. Do they back off on the, on the engine at all? Why didn't they stop? Why didn't they at least do something? My, my, okay, I guess they, they did the horn, but come on. My dad brought that up, and, and why wasn't it slowing down? And I'm guessing it probably was trying to slow down, but if you know a train going at that, especially at that you know, version of a train back then, going 60 miles an hour, it takes them like a mile to stop. Yeah, but they that, can't train, stop that, right that away. train was not stopping. It's, there was no brakes or anything. Usually you hear the brakes. Yeah. So those conductors assholes yeah they were probably figuring out the points for i was just (laughs) you beat me by one second (laughs) and so gordy saves Vern. yeah and i I like Vern just starts crawling faster i love what uh chris says 
Well, I guess we know when the next train's coming. Yuck, yuck, yuck. It's evening time, and they're in front of a campfire. When you watched this, was it weird that they just balled the hamburger up and put it on a stick? Did yes. that look weird to you? I did think that was a little bit odd. And I love when Vern drops his, and the, everyone's laughing at him. He's so excited when he gets it back. Yeah, he's like, screw you guys, I got it. Mm-hmm. I thought some of the uh, some great conversation came out during the whole campfire scene. And then, uh, I mean, what did you guys think of that whole scene? It was a very bonding moment, and it just made me like the characters even more. Gordo, tell us a story. And I like this bit, although I will admit, even in 86, it is hard for me to watch because there's something about vomit that just makes me fucking sick. I don't have a problem with it unless somebody else is vomiting because of it. Yeah. So if they're making the noises or you that smell. Oh, the smell. Yeah. Julie couldn't watch the scene. She had to turn away. And uh, it's when... When Lardass drinks the castor oil and then does the egg and then lets out that burp. When you hear all that noise. <laughs> oh, yeah. my gosh. I, I I had to turn away because I'll start dry heaving. It's fucking brutal. But it's a funny story. And the way Gordy tells it, you know, natural storyteller. Did you know that Ray Brower was in that scene? Yeah, he was standing behind the twins. Overall, what did you think of Barforama? It was a fun story. It was a nice break from what we had been getting. It, it kind of takes us away and, and hits pause for a moment on what's going around. And I, the story itself is a classic story of revenge. So I loved it. What about you? What did you think of it? I, I thought it was, you know, I was trying to debate on whether the movie or the book really needed that side story, but I thought it was a fun, as you just mentioned, a fun kind of diversion to hit pause on everything else that was going on. It's a great way to put it. Um, I also liked the fact of that, you know, we're seeing kind of into Gordy's head, we're seeing his artistic ability, and we're seeing that, you know, maybe he, you know, he does, he's a very innocent, he's kind of a very quiet, shy kind of kid, but at the same time, He's got that kind of things going on in his head, and maybe he's looking for a little revenge. Professor, what do you think of that scene? Oh, in general, I liked it. Um, it was a fun moment in the story, and you know, I'm glad they included it in the movie. The guy that played Lardass uh, was telling a story about the movie, and apparently, uh, while everybody is puking, I guess the the puke was made up of blueberries and cottage cheese. That's what they use for the puke. But there was a extra little girl out in the audience who did throw up, real you know, really threw up because of all of that. Fuck, I would have thrown up too. The boys wake up to the sound of a coyote, and they start to freak out, and, and now they there's decide more coyote well, noises. Well, I love how was it Teddy starts saying that that's not a coyote, that's a ghost, that's a woman wailing. Yeah, well, he said it was the ghost of the Ray Brower kid. Yeah, yeah. it oh. sounded like a woman shrinking. They're trying to scare Vern. And so they decide to each take a shift. And I like how Teddy volunteers first because he's all gung-ho. And he's standing on the tree talking to himself. And everyone's telling him to shut, shut up. up. The well, best one had to be Vern. Oh, the... Hands down, Vern was the best. He was yeah. so skittish bouncing around the tree. And... Yeah. and if you watch real closely, I think Jerry O'Connell's trying not to smile I, during some of it. I thought he was going to shoot something. I, so did I. And then we get to Chris, and he goes by the fire because he's cold, and he wakes, or and Gordy's having a bad dream, mm-hmm. and he wakes up, and then they go and they have a chat, and this is where we find out about Chris and the milk money. You know, for the 
when I was watching it last night, I could have swore that he didn't steal it, but he got blamed anyway. And then I like how Gordy says, well, did you take the fucking money? And he's like, yeah, I took it. But the point was nobody even questioned him. They just suspended him. And then I like how he goes into the story of maybe, and maybe. maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I That to me was probably the most touching scene of the movie. Pretty close. Pretty close. I think uh, another one is coming up when they're on the log. I guess I'm just a pussy, huh? Yeah. And so they have their moment, and then the sun rises, and it's Gordy's turn, and he's sitting on the railroad track reading a comic, which I fucking love, and then a little deer shows up, a little doe. And I like how the narrator says, I have never spoken of this moment until right now when I just wrote it. And even though it was on the tip of his tongue to tell all the boys, he doesn't because he wants that moment for himself. And I thought that was really cool. Did you think that that was supposed to represent anything or just be a moment? I took it as just a moment. I did too. Okay. I w- I've seen out there a bunch of different stories of what it could represent, but I like the idea of it was, it was just a moment for him. The next day, the boys wade across a swamp, discovering it filled with leeches. Gordy faints after removing a leech attached to his balls. After more hiking, the boys locate the body. The discovery traumatizes Gordy, who asks Chris why Denny had to die and cries about his father hating him. Chris comforts Gordy and asserts that his father simply does not know him. Ace and his gang arrive to claim the body and threaten to hurt the boys if they stay. When Chris refuses to back down, Ace draws a switchblade. Gordy gets the gun, fires a warning shot, and stands beside Chris while aiming the gun at Ace. Ace demands the weapon, but Gordy refuses while insulting and threatening him. Ace and his gang vow revenge and leave. The boys decide that exploiting Bauer's death would be wrong and instead report it via an anonymous phone call. They walk back to Castle Rock and part ways. So the next morning they get up and they start walking down the train track and they decide if we cut across this field into the woods, we'll be there in an hour. But if we don't, we got to go 10 miles down the train track. And Vern's like, nah, dude, we should stay on the track. And everyone else is like, no, let's go. Especially Gordy. Gordy now has a new obsession or some kind of obsession to see this. I love how they all go down the hill and you see Vern kind of fall and start rolling down the hill. (laughs) Yeah. I wonder why it's called the Royal. Oh, I don't know. You know that that's the same river that was used in Shawshank Redemption. That's where they, he said he threw the gun, Tim Tim Robbins' character. So we get to the swamp. Uh, I thought this was an interesting story from Corey Feldman, uh, that Rob Reiner didn't want them to actually go into like a real kind of swamp water, not knowing what was in that water. So they had the swamp, like the whole swamp thing was man-made. Um, but when they made it and they filled it up with water and everything else, they left it for four months and didn't do anything with it. So Corey said when they actually got to the point where they're going across the water, nobody knew what was in the water anyway. It was some really dirty water. Yeah. Yeah. And after hearing that story and then watching it, how they linger in the water and just how they frolic, right? Mm -hmm. And it turns out that, well, there's fucking leeches in the water. 
I remember watching this growing up going, what the fuck are leeches? And I'm never going in the water again. Mm -hmm. That apparently is an actual story that happened to Stephen King. I believe it. Growing up in Maine? Yeah, he based it off of his own real life. Yeah. Uh, Now, I guess the leeches were uh, little rubber things that were cemented or rubber cement on with uh, red dye. Mm. Uh, And I thought it was an interesting is that uh, after filming... Uh, the kids went out to, I can't remember, they went to like an amusement park, or no, a water slide. Water park. Water park. And they weren't let in because of the red dots that were all over them from the leeches. They thought they were They thought they had a skin condition or yeah. something. Oh, funny. I love that moment when Gordy finally pulls the last one off of his balls and then he... He looks at the blood on his hands, and it's just too much. Traumatizing, man. That Absolutely would be, traumatizing. That would be pretty traumatizing. Ugh. And he he looks down and he's like, "Oh, Chris, what the fuck? Have you guys ever had leeches on you before? Never. You? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Uh, probably around that age type of thing, swimming in a river. I heard somewhere that they excrete something so that you don't even like it numbs the area or whatever. You don't even feel that they're on you until you see them. Is that the case? I don't remember. Oh, okay. But I just remember I had them on it and. Did we use salt to get help get them off? I don't remember. I think that's what you're supposed to do. Not just pull them out, huh? No, because sometimes they can leave, like ticks, they can leave the head in. Yeah. In the meantime, we see that Ace is discovering about the body because the guys, Billy and what's the other guy's name? Charlie. Billy and Charlie, they can't contain it anymore. They can't keep a secret. <laughs> Despite, you know, uh, tarnishing their mother's good names. Mm-hmm. I love that bit. So everybody knows, and Ace is like, we're going, and... They're going to claim it was a fishing trip. Right. And they're going to get famous, and they head out. And here we go to the showdown. Now we have the boys. They find Harlow Road, and they start moving their way along looking. And it's Vern that finds the body, and they go down there, and they see it. This was the first time that the actors saw that body, and so what we're getting is a genuine reaction from them. And, yeah, I mean, seeing a dead body in that type of capacity, it's got to it's got to do something it's to it. It's got to be jarring. Yeah. What did you guys think of this whole bit? I thought it was beautifully done. Yeah, I like how they didn't linger on the body. We didn't need to keep just staring at it, like staring at the boys, staring at the body. We got, you know, from their faces alone, we got, you know, what we needed to see. Agreed. And this is where... Gordy kind of breaks down. Right. He he refle- he does the self-reflection of his own life. Right. I kind of, you know, dealing with my own life and dealing with loss, things like that, you know, I kind of started to see in Gordy uh, his obsession, because you mentioned it earlier, Don, his obsession to see this body. And seeing a dead body makes it real. Um, you know, when I've had friends who have passed, people have asked me if I wanted to go see the body. And I said no for that exact reason, because seeing it makes it real. And sometimes it's just better not to see something like that. But Gordy, I think, this to him was a connection to his brother. And seeing that body probably made his brother's death now real in his head. Sure. Right after the, uh, the, the, this touching moment between Gordy and Chris, Chris comforting Gordy. Was this the scene you were talking about that this is the most, you thought the most tender, most um, emotional scene of the movie? Yeah, it's up there uh, along with the milk money story. But Chris just shows 
what kind of a friend he is. Mm-hmm. And he says, uh, Gordy keeps saying, my dad hates me. My dad hates me. And Chris is like, no, dude, your dad doesn't know you. And that's so true. And it could be true about so many fathers around the world, right? They just don't know their kids. And I thought that it was really mature of Chris Mm -hmm. to come Mm -hmm. up with that and kind of be his emotional backbone. Mm -hmm. And it was okay that these boys let their guard down. And it's even more wonderful that they were there for each other. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that Rob Reiner and the cast did a fantastic job in this bit because it was sad. Rob Reiner does it in a way that we, the audience can feel it. And yeah, it was just a very tender moment. I just loved how, you know, we got to see this intimate moment early on or halfway through, you know, when, when uh, Chris is breaking down and now we have, you know, Chris being the strong one and Mm -hmm. the the way that they're there for each other. Just so good. And of course, Ace comes in and fucks it all up. Mm -hmm. I like how Vern takes off. Yeah. Vern and Teddy kind of just disappeared in that. Teddy doesn't right away. Teddy doesn't, take off until the switchblade comes out so he kind of talks a big talk mm-hmm. but as soon as that switchblade comes out yeah teddy's gone but chris will not back down he's like no man you're not taking him i like how he says we have dibs we have dibs on a dead body leave, awesome leave quietly or you stay and we beat the shit out of you and still chris says no man and then what does he say you're gonna have to kill me ace and he says okay no problem and this is the first time that Eyeball's like, Ace, man, what are you doing? He's kind of scaring his own crew a little bit. And that was written just for the movie because apparently, again, in the book, Eyeball didn't give a damn. And then Gordy squeezes off a shot and everyone's taken back. And Ace is like, you're not going to fucking do it. And you could see in Gordy's eyes, yeah, he would have done it. Yeah, you're not going to take him. Yeah. I always thought, what's the aftermath going to look like? But it doesn't matter because we don't know. There actually in the book there is an aftermath. Yeah, well, I didn't read the book. Uh and I thought it was interesting that uh they kind of leave it open ended. They leave it like uh we don't know what happened next, you know, with the whole ace because Ace said I'll be seeing you. So we don't know what happened with Ace. And something was mentioned earlier with Vern. When Vern heard the Barfarama story, he said, I don't like that ending because I don't know what happens next. Uh, Teddy says that. Was it Teddy that said that? Yeah. Well, anyway, Teddy says he doesn't, you know, we don't know what happened next. And I felt like that was almost a precursor to this, that we don't know know what happened next. We don't know how the story ended with Ace and all of that. Now, in the book, Ace did catch up to Gordy, apparently kicked him in the testicles, broke several fingers, and broke his nose. I agree with you that we didn't need that. We didn't need to see that. We needed, it was much nicer to have kind of the happy open-ended And ending. Teddy wanted a fucking violent ending for Gordy's story. So mm-hmm. fuck him. Gordy's story ended just fine. And so uh, nobody gets to take the kid. They decide that they're not going to take the body. And it comes down to an anonymous phone call. They start making their way back home. And that trip, <laughs> we, we have, we have, a whole, well, half, half, two thirds of a movie for the trip there. And then we have two minutes to, for them to get back home. If that, 
But he does make it a point to say that they walked all through the night. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so. they got home at 5 a.m. And right. they didn't really say much the whole way home. Right. I mean, that was kind of a somber moment. And I thought something interesting that you mentioned earlier on when you were talking about this movie was the size of the town. What did they say the size of the town was? I don't know, like 1,200 people. Yeah, and they made it sound like this was a big town because it's all they ever knew. But when they got back to the town, I think it was the you know the narration that said uh, the town seemed a lot smaller. Yeah, because they yeah, and it's because they got out and saw the world mm-hmm. a little bit. They got outside of the town. Yeah, so it just kind of shows illustrates how much they've changed over this trip. Oh sure. Back in the present day, Gordy is finishing a memoir of the experience. He notes that Vern and Teddy separated from him and Chris in junior high. Vern married after high school, had four children, and became a forklift operator. Teddy tried getting into the army, but his damaged ear and poor eyesight disqualified him. He ended up serving jail time and working odd jobs. Chris took college prep courses with Gordy and, despite struggling, later became a lawyer, with the two eventually drifting apart. Recently, while attempting to break up a fight in a restaurant, Chris was stabbed to death. Gordy writes that despite not seeing Chris in over a decade, he will miss him forever. He ends the story with, I never had any friends later on like the ones I had when I was 12. Jesus, does anybody? Before going outside to play with his sons. Roll credits. And so they're back. And they kind of go their separate ways. And we get the narration of what happens. What would you guys think of this whole ending bit, the whole tying it up with a bow? Well, I, I appreciated how they talked about, you know, how things kind of happen in junior high and high school, that you have these you're really close friends beforehand, but everything seems to change when you guys have different classes and just a much bigger school, and you kind of lose touch with people. That's life, man. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What do you think of, I mean, it was pretty obvious in the beginning that when he was, re- they, ha- they showed that article that that was, Chris's, you know, how Chris ended up. Uh, what do you think of the way they wrote that, that uh, Chris died breaking up a fight? It makes sense. It tracks with who Chris was and the Chris that we saw in the movie. Right. And it just, it all came full circle. So it was good storytelling. Would it have mattered if, like the book version, they had mentioned that Teddy was killed in a car crash and Vern died in a house fire? No. Okay. No. Would it have made a difference to you? I think it would have taken away from the focus from Chris's death. And that was Stand By Me. Welcome to a new segment we like to call... Face the Wheel! The premise is simple. One of us will spin the wheel and whatever category comes up, the three guys will apply it to the movie we are reviewing. Once we have presented our pitch, we will ask you, the listeners, to pick which one you liked which means we need your participation. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, threeguysinaflick.com, anywhere you can leave us a comment, please do so. All right, we have 10 categories on the wheel. And just to go over the categories, we have, I liked it better when it was called, fuck it, mashup, plot, rename, genre, reboot, add any character, Pick any category and spin again. 
So, Don, it was your pick this week. You're the one to spin the wheel. All right. Here we go. Big money. Mashup. The premise of Mashup is take any movie that you want, mash it to Stand By Me, and see what you come up with. I'll go first. I'm going to take Stand By Me. And I am going to take our four characters, and they are no longer in Castle Rock, Oregon. They are now in the Wasteland. And they come across a loner, and then they all travel to a town together, and they must fight and survive in a post-apocalyptic world in the Thunderdome. And I call it Stand By Me in the Thunderdome. That's nice. That's pretty good. Not as good as my mashup, though. Oh, fuck yeah. I am all ears. Give it to me. Okay. So we start off with Ace. And we find Ace at home with his father. And his father refers to him not as Ace. He refers to him as David. And David uh, doesn't realize that his father's not the same as when he left earlier that day. His father is now a vampire. His father turns David, Ace, into a vampire. Ace goes on a killing spree. First of all, he converts all of his gang into vampire brothers and sisters of him, and they go on a killing spree, and unfortunately, they get Gordy and they get Chris. And all that's left is Teddy and Vern. Well, Vern is the next to go. But Teddy, with his mother, they escape town, and they run away. And they go into like a witness relocation program where they change their last names to the Frogs. David and his father decide, we need to find where they went. We need to track them down. And they track them down to this kind of beach-type area uh, where they decide to set up shop and start all over. And Teddy actually manages to grow up. And he has children. And one of his sons looks just like him, as well as the other son are very close. And they become vampire hunters themselves, calling themselves the Frog Brothers, where we have Stand By Me, The Lost Years. The Lost Years. So combining it with the Lost Boys. <laughs> okay. Okay. Listeners, there you have it. Let us know which one you prefer. Stand by me at the Thunderdome or stand by me the Lost Years. All right. Not too bad. What do you guys think? You guys ready to rate this flick? I'm ready to rate this flick, John. Are you ready to rate this flick? I just drank a whole bottle of castor oil, so I'm ready to throw something together. All right. Uh, Professor, how do we do our ratings? We do our ratings on a scale of one to five fucks. Five fucks is a movie that we think is cinematic gold. A one fuck movie is a movie where you've watched it once and you're done and it's like, I'm never going to watch that again. And what's a zero? A zero fuck movie is, oh, you get done with it and you're like, oh, for shit's sake, what the hell? Who made me? Why did you make me watch this? I want one hour and 36 minutes of my life back. Or in other words, we just don't give a fuck. All right, uh, I picked it. I will go first. Stand By Me, 1986. I was 12 years old. I saw it in the theater. This movie holds a lot of nostalgia for me. And going back and watching it again, I think a lot of it holds up. And I think it's very solid storytelling. I buy the chemistry with the actors. We talked about the needle drops and how on point they were. I had the Stand By Me poster in my room, the one that says the quote about the cherry flavor Pez. I had the Stand By Me soundtrack, and it was on constant rotation. I love this film. 
I think this is one of my top three Stephen King adaptations. Overall, this is a timeless classic. It's a story about coming of age, and I think some of the motifs in it were ahead of its time a little bit. And I think if this movie got made today, I think we could still keep the heart but update it to today's times. But overall, as a movie, I think this is a classic. And so I am giving Stand By Me 4.75 fucks. That's pretty darn high. You want me to go next or you want to go next, Professor? No, you can go. Okay, I will go next. When it comes to a coming-of-age movie, Stand By Me is an outstanding example of that genre. It captures a prime example of the life of free-range children at 12 or 13 years old, before the internet came along. Julie, after watching this movie, said, this is a boy's movie that only boys would understand. And I partially agree with her. This movie serves as a great slice of life to really understand what's going on in just boys' heads at that age and at that time. I felt drawn to each character, actually caring about what they had to say and about their lives. This movie was never about the journey to find the body. It was about the journeys going on inside of each of the boys. The dialogue was well-written, as referenced by Julie, that it actually felt like conversations these young men would actually have. I also love how it was interspersed with random thoughts of just nuggets of wisdom and had a real heart to the story. The casting was well done. Could others have played these characters just as well? Possibly, but I wouldn't have replaced anyone in this movie. And this is a movie that I honestly hope they never reboot or try to remake. I think it's just great the way it is. My only complaint about this movie was the train sequence. That one was a little bit hard to swallow overall, but it's a product of its time and a product of its technology. I'm also not a huge fan of the end. It felt like maybe there needed to be a little bit more, but Don, you actually convinced me during uh, your, you know, talking about it earlier that, you know, it, it did end in the right way. Uh, it did. We didn't need any more. So I'm going to retract my statement of saying that that was one of my complaints. I would definitely recommend this movie to everyone to watch. I especially think that anybody today under 20 needs to see this movie even if it's just to see what life was like before gadgets and the internet. Damn, I sound old. I also enjoy revisiting this movie from time to time, but it's not a movie I would watch anytime. I would say it's almost perfect, but not quite there. So for those reasons, wait, before I give my rating, Don, you want to guess what my rating is going to be? After your review there, Guy, I'm going to go ahead and say that you were giving Stand By Me 4.25 fucks. Okay. That. Final answer. So for those reasons, I'm giving Stand By Me 4.25 fucks. Yeah, baby. Uh, what am I, 750 now? It's got to be 750. 750 for the year? For the three movies? All right, we'll just say 75. 4.25 fucks from the comic book guy. Professor, you're up, buddy. Stand By Me is a wonderful movie that I thought was so true to the to the story and it was so rich to watch it in the theater having it go so close to the to the story and that was something that just you know really hit it off for me and because of that it was something that um, 
it just ended on a really high note for me. Not only is it a really solid movie, not only are the characters richly developed and cast so well, and it has a wonderful uh, cadence to it where, you know, it is somber and then it is fun, it is serious and then it is silly, and the needle drops make the movie just clip right along. I, I, I feel like that there are no slow or, or dead moments in this movie because every scene is revealing something to us that compels us to want to know what's going to happen next in the story. And I think that Rob Reiner's vision that he executed with this is probably, I don't know, man, I think it's probably his best work. Um, Princess Bride was fantastic, absolutely, but you know, I, I think that this one just, it's, it's such a good movie. And I, I think that, you know, watching it the other night is every bit as fresh as when I watched it the first time. It's an easy, it's an easy movie to watch. Uh, I think that it's, I'm really torn, but I think I'm going to go with 4.75 fucks. 4.75 fucks from The Professor. So that gives 4.75 fucks from The Professor and myself, 4.25 fucks from The Comic Book Guy. That gives Stand By Me an average of 4.6 fucks, which now ties it in the number five spot with Ocean's Eleven. It is slightly better than The Princess Bride, John Wick Chapter 3, Parabellum, Snatch, and Alien. And it is slightly worse than Black Panther, Elf, and the Shawshank Redemption. That's what I wanted to know. I wanted to know where was Shawshank and then where was Princess Bride. Ironically enough, they're not that far apart from each other, and they are both what Stephen King considers his best adaptations of his work. And then you also have two Rob Reiner movies. The Princess Bride and... Stand By Me. That's right. All right, that is going to wrap it up for this episode of Three Guys in a Flick. If you would like to know which movie we are going to be reviewing next, please check out our website. Hey, speaking of which, John, where can they find us? They can find us at threeguysinaflick.com, where we go ahead and post all of our show notes, podcasts, anything else we feel like posting there. There's also a web form there that you can submit what movie you'd like us to review next, as well as give us some comments or some feedback about the shows that you are listening to. We'd love to hear from you. We also, as Don mentioned earlier, would love to know which one of us between Don and I won the wheel this week. You can also find us on all of social media, Facebook, Twitter, anything out there. We could love your comments there. And if you listen to us on any of the podcast hosting sites like Spotify, go ahead and give us a like and uh, you know make sure to follow us. Give us some comments. We are really looking for some feedback. I just want to thank Brandon again for submitting Stand By Me into the Bronco Helmet. We had a lot of fun reviewing it. We hope that you have a lot of fun listening to it. And I want to thank anyone else who listens and who has requested a movie. If you keep listening, we'll keep recording. For Three Guys in a Flick, I'm Don. I'm John. And I'm Ken. Thanks for listening. with you guys you guys are fucking killing me i thought you liked it when it was hard 
not this hard. Sometimes there's a thing of too hard, bud. No, there's not. Do you have anything? Time to get a new host. Oh, my God. That went dark. Yeah, it did. (laughs) Fuck you, dude. I learned about pinky swears and two for flinching from a movie. And so the whole summer of 1986... I was hitting everybody. <laughs> Shit. Is Julie listening right now? Well, she's not listening anymore. Chris confronts Gordy and asserts that his father simply... Stop. Comforts. What'd I say? Confronts. What's the fucking difference? You don't have to stick chopper on my balls to get me to run. Four, three guys in a flick. I'm Don. I'm Vern. <laughs> I ran all the way home. Where's my doo-wop, guy? Sorry. Listen, motherfucker, we only do 80s Billy Joel doo-wop. All right, what you got? How I many? Or how many do you got? I only have one, and I think you and I might have the same one this week, because we kind of think alike. Stand by my boner. Oh, that's not a bad one. Yeah, what you got? Pee on me. <laughs> Boop. All right, stopped recording. Do you have one? <laughs> no. <laughs> I think he does. I do, too. Boop. All right, stopped recording again. That's weird. What were you thinking, Professor? And didn't realize they, they were pot-laced brownies. And Jerry O'Connell got into those brownies. And I believe they finally found him in a park sitting on a bench crying because he had no idea where he was or what was going on. He was stoned out of his mind. That's fucking funny. I like that. That's a fun story. That is a fun story. Hey, speaking of which, I got some brownies upstairs. You guys down? Not again. Not after what happened last time. Oh, come on. You're going to fucking love it. Professor, you're in, right, Viva? Yeah, maybe. All right. Sounds good. All right. May all of your uh, days and nights be filled with happiness. All right. Fuck off. Good night. <laughs>